So we're in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is all about the early church and what they did and what they were all about. And let me give you two dangers. When we read these passages about the early church, there's two kind of very easy mistakes to make, okay? The first mistake is to read this stuff and pretend like the early church was perfect. So we read these texts, and this was a big thing a couple of years ago. I feel like there was a lot of churches that were doing, um, we're trying to be, get rid of all this baggage that the church has added on, and we just want to be like the early church. Uh, okay, but like one time the pastor got mad and yelled at somebody and then God killed her. Like, do you really want to be like the early church? You know, like the couple, both of them, the, the husband and wife. We'll get there. And then another time, as we'll read in a few chapters, they were giving out uh, like some support to some of the poorer widows. And there was some racial tension and the, the Jewish widows were getting more than the, 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 the Hebrew speaking widows were getting more than the Hebrew Greek speaking widows. And the church had to be like, mm, that's probably not a good idea. And they had to solve it. And we'll get to all that stuff. So let's not pretend like this early church was perfect and that everything we read, we have to do it exactly like they did it. So like one of the movements was we can only meet in houses or a house church movement, because that's what the early church did. Well, you know, that's actually not true. The early church met in the temple, and then they couldn't meet in houses because of persecution, and then as soon as they could all meet back together, they did, right? So, I don't know. Let's just not, let's not worship these guys. These were just some regular guys who also loved Jesus and were filled with the Spirit. But then the second danger is pretending like we are perfect, yeah, we have 2,000 years of history. We've pretty much figured this out. And the way we do church, we can't learn anything from these guys. They were mostly uneducated. They didn't have the kind of money we have. They, weren't, they didn't have 2,000 years of history and his, historical theology figuring out what we believe. And so we'll read these cute little stories, but we don't have a lot to learn from them. There's kind of, see, you see these two polar opposites. What we want to do is realize who these people really were. Uh, and what they did, and we want to learn from them. And then at the same time, we want to understand we're not in the same context that they were in. We don't have to do everything exactly like they did it. And so we want to walk this balance and try to figure out again, what from this is prescriptive and what is descriptive, right? Like what is just describing what happened and what is sort of a command, like this is how it's supposed to be. Today's passage, we're going to take a look at the very early church. And in fact, actually, we're going to take a look at the very earliest church, right? So we've done Pentecost, uh, thousands of people just got saved, and now what's next? That, you know, they had this baptism, thousands, was it 3,000 people just got baptized? So they're now 3,120 believers in this church. So what did they do next? And the sentence, this passage we're about to read, this next little chunk over the next couple of weeks, well, I'll give you the schedule real quick. Today, we're just going to read one verse. We're going to read 242. It's one of the most important verses in the book of Acts. Next week, we're going to be at Trinity First, and we're going to do their liturgy. So I don't know what they've got planned. I don't know what they're teaching even right now. I think they're still doing, are they still doing Ephesians? I don't know. Um, we're going to do whatever they're doing. The following week on New Year's Eve, we're going to be at their place, but we're going to be doing our liturgy. And that's when we're going to finish the next part here. So we're doing 242 today. And then in two weeks, we're going to do 42 through, I think it's 47. I don't have my Bible open, um, through 47. And so what we're looking at here, though, is I called this sermon, uh, the, I, don't, you, yeah, I don't know, picking sermon names is the hardest part about preaching, by the way. Uh, you know, especially when I go to other churches, they always want some catchy name that has alliteration in it and everything. And I'm like, I don't know, just call it Acts 242, you know, but I called this one the blueprint because I think that this passage is not descriptive. It's not just describing what they did. 
this is telling us this is what the early church did because this is what churches are supposed to do. Okay? So let's take a look. We have a very... You remember... Um, we're doing the opposite of Ezekiel. Do you guys remember Ezekiel? I was like, oh my gosh, is he still reading? Like he's been going and he's been talking about how Israel's prostitutes and all this stuff for like 20 minutes now, you know. Okay, we're doing the complete opposite, oops, complete opposite of Ezekiel. Here's the whole passage. You ready for this? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All right, let's go home, right? That's it. No, I'm going to stretch this out like a master's thesis. Here we go. <laughs> so let's take a look first at the, the wording here. At the very beginning, before we get into these four things, I want, to see what, I want to show you something. They devoted themselves to these things. So in Greek, they have... Greek language works a little bit different than English. Um, the way this verb is, is written, it actually kind of says something more like, and they were continually or they were constantly devoting themselves. Like it's like happening over and over and over and over again. It's like a repeated action. So the King James, the, the King Jimmy, right, uh, says, and they continued steadfastly. I like that too. Devoted, continued steadfastly. This, is, this wasn't a one-time dealio. This was continual. And uh, devoted, steadfastly, whatever. It's a single-minded uh, fidelity, right, to a certain, like a course or an action or whatever. And so this list is way more than what the church did right after these 3,000 baptisms. This list is what they devoted themselves to as a church. So I want you to think about the difference here. Um, let's take an example. I don't know. Let's say football, right? Because uh, anyway, I, I know how much you guys are all football fans. There's a football player. His name's Jerry Rice. Have you heard of him? Okay. Man, he's, if you've ever sometime want to have a good chuckle, go on the internet and then Google Jerry Rice's records. He holds every record for a receiver, basically. And then the, the thing is, though, the next closest guy to him is always either, what is it, Randy Moss or uh, Terrell Owens. And they're like two-thirds of the way to his records. So total touchdowns in a career and, you know, all, the, all these different records. Jerry Rice was is not even close to the best play. Like, nobody's even near him. Uh, nobody are, is ever going to break these records. If you cut his career in half and you took the beginning of his career, that's a Hall of Fame career. And if you only took the second half of his career, that's another Hall of Fame career. He had two different sections of his life where he was a Hall of Famer. But then here's the thing. If you ever watched Jerry Rice play, you're like, huh, he's not the fastest guy out there. Matter of fact, he's not even close to the fastest guy out there. Okay, then he's probably the strongest guy. You would not be very impressed with Jerry Rice's strength. Okay, so what did he have the biggest hands? Because catching a football, a lot of those guys have these big giant hands, you know? No, didn't have the biggest hands. Well, what is it that made Jerry Rice not even close to the greatest, like by far the greatest receiver in history? If you ask anybody that played with Jerry Rice they would give you the same answer because he's crazy. He cares about football more than anybody else in the history of anything has cared about anything. Like I, I heard a story, I think it was his first practice. They, they do these little drills with no pads on or anything. And he just ran a little crossing route in the front and the guy threw him the ball. And then Jerry Rice ran 80 yards to the end zone to finish the play. While everybody else just catches the ball and then they slow down, they, toss it back, and they go back and play. And Jerry Rice did this for most of his career, if I remember correctly. 
He was that annoying guy on the field that took every play, every practice, right, every repetition like he was in the Super Bowl. He was so devoted to it. He went to sleep every night thinking about football. He woke up. He thinks about football. He practiced his routes. I think it was Steve Young said one time, Jerry Rice was always exactly where he was supposed to be. And that's the amazing thing about him. So you could throw the ball before he starts moving over there because you know eventually he's going to get there at the exact time that he's supposed to be there because all he does is he thinks about football. He's devoted to football. Jerry Rice has said there are more talented receivers. Kobe Bryant was like this too. I heard Kobe say that if Shaq had his work ethic, he would have been the greatest player of all time, right? But Shaq liked to, you know, not work, <laughs> right? And same with Jerry Rice. If the, like these believers were devoted to these four things, like Jerry Rice, like Kobe Bryant were devoted to their craft. It's like all they thought about. Now, I want you to think before we get into this, this list, what is it that you're devoted to? Right? As a church, what is it that we are devoted to? Hopefully, it's these four things. It's not, though. <laughs> right? So let's take a look at this. We don't want these things to be the things we do sometimes and part of our lives. These are the things we're devoted to. So the first thing on the list is the apostles' teaching. So I'm going to ask three questions about apostles' teaching that will help us understand what's going on here. The first is, who were the teachers? The second is, what did they teach? And the third thing is, how did they teach it? Okay? So who were the teachers? It says right there, the apostles. Okay, we're done. Now, the word apostle is a little tricky in Greek because it means two things. It means, in just a general sense, there's lots of apostles. Somebody who's just sent on a mission, right? Like uh, somebody who's going to do something for somebody else. That's what apostle means. So you could say the, the Grubhub guy is an apostle, right? He's my apostle. He's on the mission. He went to go get my food. He's bringing it back, and I'm paying him, and I'm tipping him and doing the whole thing. He's an apostle. He's on this mission for me. But in a more technical sense, in a more specific sense, apostle is used by the early Christians to mean a couple of these guys that Jesus specifically commissioned to found the church. So their mission was sent from personally from Jesus, and that's why Paul is constantly in the New Testament talking about how he really met Jesus on the road and how I'm really an apostle, right? He really did see the risen Christ, and he sent on this mission. So these guys that founded the church, there were the 12 apostles, and then the New Testament does talk about a few other ones. I think Barnabas is called an apostle. Paul is called an apostle. Um, so we have these guys. They were meant to found the church. But here's the thing. If you ever see a bus going down the church, uh, sorry, down the church, down the street, and it has the church name on the side of the bus, have you ever seen one of these? Or like a van, like the big 15-passenger van. And okay, if it has the pastor's name on the van, don't go to that church. That's the first red flag. The second red flag is if it says that the pastor is an apostle, really don't go to that church. Because here's the thing. The apostles and the office of apostle is not something that is continued in church history. This was like a one-time group of guys. They founded the church. They started it. They got the whole movement going. Sorry. Move this over here real quick. By the way, somebody put out a bunch of tambourines on Friday night. They were like, people can just play along. I was like, not going to happen. I put them away. I hit them before everybody got there. So you're, you're welcome, everybody. Uh, what was I talking about? Something about Jesus? Oh, yeah. Um, so the apostles were this group of guys that were just, they started the church, they got it going, and then they all died. And after they died, they didn't start replacing them. We'll see in a few chapters that uh, one of the first ones to die is uh, John's older brother, James. 
He's the first one to die. And when he dies, there's no election. There's no, let's get together and see who, who the Holy Spirit has to replace him, like when Judas took off. So these apostles, these were these one-time deals. After the apostles, though, there was a group that has continued throughout all of church history, and that group is called elders. And these elders is what we in kind of Western church, we call pastors. Uh, but the word elder, pastor means kind of shepherd. The word elder, though, means a leader. It doesn't just mean an old person. Right? It means specifically it's an office within the church. Um, yeah, so it's called a few different names. I wrote these down. Elders, which is the word presbyteros. Overseers or bishops. Um, they're called shepherds. The word pastor, right? Anyway, um, I want to read to you real quick. So who are these guys? These are the guys I think we're, we, we can't say as a church we need to go and we need to listen to the apostles' teaching because we don't have apostles' teaching anymore. But what we have is elders, that's me at our church, um, who are responsible for teaching the same things that the apostles taught. And as the New Testament movement went on, um, these apostles, sorry, let me flip to this, um, sorry, these elders continued the ministry of the apostles, but from a different office. So let me just read these to you real quick. I hate this verse, by the way. Yeah, okay, you'll see why in a second. This is a terrifying verse if you're a pastor. Look at this is saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, that's elder, right? If anybody wants to be one of these elders, he desires a noble task. Okay, it's a good thing to be the pastor. Therefore, and ideally, and we'll get to this later on in the book of Acts, ideally churches don't have one elder, right? That's what we're working on here. Um, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. There's another set of qualifications. I'm not going to read this whole one, but in Titus, there's a very similar, I'll just put it up on the screen. There's a very similar list. Here's the thing. With the qualifications to become an elder, if you notice, almost all of them, except for one, are qualifications about who you are, not what you can do. You ever think about that in a job interview? They never ask you like who you are what you care, they ask you, you know, mostly, I mean, I've never had a real job, but I assume, right? Most of these questions are about like, can you, you know, don't you guys do coding tests? I remember that from like, when Steven was looking for work, he was doing coding tests and that sort of stuff. That's like, can you do this job? Nobody asks you what you care about, you know, but here, this is like who you are. They ask about your family, that sort of stuff. And the reason that that, and then the one qualification of uh, a skill is able to teach because they're supposed to be we are supposed to be able to teach the apostles' teaching to the church. The things of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is supposed to be passed through the elders to the congregation, the same way it was. And that only happens if the elders are good people. And that terrifies every elder because the truth is elders are also just like, we're just regular folks. And if you expect pastors to be superhero of, superheroes of faith which is what we do in the West, this is why we're constantly let down by our pastors. Somebody finds out that the pastor is a regular person who kind of stinks, and they go, oh, I can't believe he stinks. I'm like, well, that's the whole gospel, right? We all stink. But at the same time, these elders are supposed to be set apart, and they're supposed to be, 
you know, have these qualifications, these mature believers who can pass along the faith. Um, this guy, Jeremy Ryan, Reine, I don't know how to say his name, talks about this here. Um, uh, the importance of preaching sometimes surprises people, but he says this, the fact that God requires elders to teach his people shouldn't surprise us. God rules his people by his word, so the leaders of God's people have always been entrusted with communicating God's word. What this means is the primary qualification to do what I do every week is, can I teach the Bible to you guys? It's not, what are my really good ideas? Right? That's a secondary thing. All the leadership stuff is secondary. Because here's the thing. If I stand up and I say, here's what the Bible says, there's an authority behind that. When I stand up and I say, here's my good idea, there's less authority. It's just coming from some guy. Right? instead of coming from God Almighty. So that's who teaches. I'm sorry, that's who's the teachers. In our context, it's not apostles, it's elders. The second thing is, again, uh, I'm going to fly through this part a little bit, but what did they teach? They taught the scriptures. So again, if at churches, and I, you know, I'm kind of a preaching nerd. I like preaching. I listen to a lot of preaching. I spend my whole life thinking about preaching. That's what I'm devoted to. I'm the Jerry Rice of preaching, except I'm not as good as him. Um, I listen to sermons sometimes, and I go, boy, that guy said a lot of things that had nothing to do with the Bible. And sometimes that's a, like, in the context of, are you taking biblical truth and contextualizing it and applying it to the people? That's great. But sometimes what we're doing is we're not taking biblical truth. I hear these sermons, and I'm like, oh, did I just listen to a sermon or a Dr. Phil episode? Right? What is, what's behind the thing that this guy is teaching? And a lot of times it's not the scripture, but specifically in the New Testament, these elders are encouraged to teach the scriptures. Um, let me jump to, uh, let me see, I think it's this verse here. This is Paul, and we'll get to this way down the line in the book of Acts. But he's talking to a group of elders from the church in Ephesus. And he's like, this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. And he gives this big teary-eyed speech. In the middle of it, he says this, how I did not uh, shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching to you in public from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks repentance towards God and of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So he, this is the last time he's ever going to see these guys. This is his farewell speech. And he goes, my conscience is clear because I taught you guys the Bible. So then he encourages them to do the same thing. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the, all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So instead of disciples following Jesus, it's like these pastors are going to want, I want my own disciples. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are, being sancti uh, who are sanctified. So he says, look, to the job of the elders, two things. Preach the word of God and make sure that wolves don't come in and teach a bunch of garbage. Right? That's the job of an elder. And so every now and again, it seems like, boy, my pastor is really mean to that one uh, preacher from Houston, 
who shall not be named. No, I'm just kidding. His name's Joel Osteen. Sometimes it's like, oh, John made another joke about Joel Osteen. And the reason I make jokes about Joel Osteen is because the stuff that he's spewing is garbage and it hurts people's lives. And part of my job is to teach the gospel. And then the other part of my job is to go, that's not the gospel. That's some other garbage. And I, I don't want that in our church. I don't want it anywhere near our church because it's poison. And that's what Paul tells these guys to do. This is the job. And so um, I want to... Um, uh, I want to show you one more quote here from this guy, Michael Horton. He's, it's so important. I think, I, I think people don't always realize how important the teaching of Scripture is in our lives. Horton says this, The regular proclamation of Christ through the close exposition of Scripture, which is basically like, let's just open the Bible and teach what the Bible says, right? So, uh, of Scripture, is more relevant in creating a worshiping and serving community than political causes, moral cruises, or entertaining services. Basically, in the West, we've thought, man, we could grow our churches with all this extra stuff that's not the preaching of God's Word. But the thing they tell you in seminary, and they say this and it gets beat to death and it's totally cliche now, but it's true. Uh, what you bring them in with is what you, know, you keep them with and what, like, is what you grow them with. So if you bring in people because of an entertaining worship service, that's what they're there for, right? They're, they're, they're there for that, not for the gospel. And so part of the job of a pastor who's teaching the apostles' teaching is to make sure that what we're actually doing here is the apostles' teaching. And so um, the last part of this was, wait, the first one was uh, who teaches, what do they teach? The last one is how do they teach it? Um, I mean, I, I'm going to skip over some of this here, but um, here's what I'll say. Wait, let me go to one verse. Uh, no, that's not it. Anyway, I don't know where this verse is. Um, there's a reason that I open up the Bible every week. Actually, I don't even, it's closed, but you know what I mean. It's on my notes here. The reason we open up the Bible every week and we just read through the book of Ezekiel. There's a reason that we open up the Bible and we read through the book of Acts. And we do topical series, but we do them less frequently. And the reason is because just the plain, simple explanation of the Word of God has a hundred times more power than me trying to get cute and convince you guys of things that I kind of believe. Because here's the thing, too. Sometimes I change my mind about stuff, but the Bible never changes. And so if I stand up here with authority and I say, let's just read through this together, it gives you guys the impression that God's word is ultimate. But at the same time, the Bible talks about the power of God's word, right? The two-edged sword and all that stuff. Right? The Bible pierces our hearts in a way that nothing else does. And so the more that I present you guys the plain truths of the Bible on Sunday afternoon, almost said morning, Sunday afternoon, the more your lives will be touched by God. I really believe that. And so that's why we do what we do here. I want to read to you this, uh, this guy. His name is Stephen Lawson. He has this... Um, He teaches a lot of preachers. He does these little courses and sort of stuff. He writes books about preaching. Uh, he said this, In many evangelical churches, however, the centrality of biblical exposition is being demoted to second-class status. That's totally true. At the heart of this alarming departure is a loss of the confidence in God's work, word to perform its sacred work. So people don't teach the Bible because they don't really believe that the Bible does what it says it will do. While evangelicals affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, that it has no errors, um, many have apparently abandoned this belief 
in its uh, abandoned their belief in its sufficiency to save and to sanctify. So they believe it has no errors, but they don't believe it really works. Rather than expounding the word with vigor, many pastors are turning to lesser strategies in an effort to resurrect dead ministries. But with each newly added novelty, the straightforward expounding of the Bible is being relegated to secondary role, further crippling the church. Doing God's work, God's way, requires an unwavering commitment to the primacy of uh, biblical preaching and teaching. That's true, right? Is we want preaching of the word, and I don't mean just me preaching on Sunday. I just mean taking in the word like we've been talking about on Wednesday night. We want to be a people of the word, and we want that to be central. Um, let me give you just three quick. I have a lot of, you guys, I could go quotes on preaching until about Thursday afternoon. But here we go. I'll just give you three very short ones. Calvin, God has chosen to anoint the lips and tongues of his servants so that when they speak, the voice of Jesus yet resounds in them. I know this is true for two reasons. Because I've sat in church under the preaching of a guy that changed my life, and then the guy turned out to be not so great. He stood up there, and he preached the truth, and it touched my heart. And now I can look back and go, well, that guy didn't quite work out. But that's okay, because Jesus was even speaking through that guy. The second thing is because I know myself. And I've had people come up to me and say things and go, wow, this word really touched me. Here's how this, your preaching impacted my life. Here's, you know, yada, yada. And my response always have to bite my tongue to go, really, me? Right? Because I know myself, and I'm a turkey, right? <laughs> so it, preaching only works when the gospel is presented, and the Bible is presented, and Jesus speaks to his people. Um, Chuck Spurgeon said this, preaching is... Uh, oh, that's a weird little symbol there. Preaching is to know truth as it should be known, to love it as it should be loved, and then to proclaim it in the right spirit and in its proper proportions. Okay, so here's one thing that I also think about a lot is this middle sentence. It's one thing to present the truth to you guys. It's another thing to present the truth to you guys in a way that you go, wow, John really loves this Bible. And I work on that a lot, and I think about that a lot, because I want you guys to love the Bible as much as I love being in Scripture and being transformed by God through Scripture. And then John Stott, who's this British guy, another British guy here, to preach is to open up the inspired text with such fruitfulness and sensitivity that God's voice is heard and God's people obey him. That's a really good definition of preaching, okay? So the first thing we're devoted to as a church is preaching. This is why the longest part of our worship services are the teaching of Scripture. Because I want this Word of God to hit you in the soul. The second thing, though, we're devoted to is very different from preaching. It's fellowship. So, um, in Greek, does anybody know the Greek word for fellowship? It's like the only Greek word people know. Koinonia. There we go. Because you heard it in a three-point sermon at camp, church camp one time or something. Anyway, um, I, the definition is kind of very broad. It means sharing, communion, participate. It means doing something together. Uh, it's used in two ways in Scripture. And we don't always... So we're going to get into word studies on Wednesday night. One of the ways mistakes people make is to not understand that sometimes words are used in different senses. So there's two senses the word koinonia is used in Scripture. The first is a vertical sense. We have communion. We have fellowship with God, the Trinity. Right? And so a lot of times when you look at the word communion, um, the word fellowship in the Bible, it's talking about that. We have fellowship with God. The second way 
that it's used is the same way we have fellowship with God, though we have fellowship horizontally with one another. We have communion with each other. Here, in 242, in Acts here, it's used in that second way. So when it says that they're devoted to the fellowship, it doesn't mean they're devoted to fellowship vertically with God the Father, even though that's totally true. Here it's talking about horizontal church-wide fellowship. Now, um, by the way, side note, it's really hard to do a whole section of a sermon about the word fellowship and not make it all puns about the Lord of the Rings. So I'm just telling you, I just want you to know, they're all in here, and because I love you guys, I'm not going to do any of them. Okay? Okay, here we go. Uh, so let me tell you what this fellowship has. It has two things. Fellowship with, within church should have two aspects to it. It should be wide, and it should be deep. And if fellowship is missing one of those two things, it's not real fellowship. The first is the width, the fellowship of width, right? Um, look at this verse from 1 John. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we've been saved. Beloved, if God loved us, so because we have this salvation from God, we also ought to love one another. Do you see how that works? So the vertical fellowship impacts the horizontal fellowship. This is where it comes from, because we've all been loved by God. We love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides or hangs out with us. He hangs out in us, and his love is then perfected in us. There are a lot of communities in the world where people are brought together by something other than the gospel. Community is not a uniquely Christian thing. Think about it. Giants fans? Where was I the other day, Melissa, where I had my hat on? I walk in with the symphony, to the symphony with my Giants hat, and this guy goes, you think we're getting Otani? And we just had a whole conversation about, I never met this guy, and we did not get Otani, and he went to the Dodgers. Now I got to drive down there and hit him with my car. It's a whole thing. Anyway, um, not really. Uh, internet, FBI guys, not really. Um, <laughs> but Giants fans, right? Um, another one, uh, Mons Groups. Right? I mean, I, there's a million of these, right? Political group. Here's the thing, though. Even a lot of churches are built on something other than the gospel. Because here, people gravitate towards being like people. Uh, people gravitate towards other people who are like them. You know, it's easy to be with somebody who's like me. And so a lot of churches are built around similar life experience, right? This church is full of young couples, or this church is full of older married couples, or built around people with similar identities, right? Like racial identity or, I mean, I saw a thing once, it was the cowboy church. I think that's what it's called, cowboy church. And they meet in a barn and, you know, and then there's other churches that would say, oh, that's not who we are. And then you walk in and I'm like, okay, well, why is everyone like dressed like a barista, you know, and has a big beard and you're all a bunch of fake lumberjacks, you know, like a bunch of hipsters or whatever. And then you go to some churches and it's all old people who are in that phase of life. Some churches are all just people who are into similar causes, feeding the hungry, combating human trafficking. Like, that's what they're all about. Um, other churches are just like this similar social status. It's all young professionals, or it's all blue-collar workers, or, you know, it's all whatever. Christian fellowship is supposed to be different. And you know how I know? Because the story of the time when Matthew, the tax collector, got brought into the group of disciples. We read about this in Luke, and we did a whole sermon about this, so I'm not going to beat this to death. But... Matthew, Levi, it was his Jewish name, uh, Matthew was a tax collector in the area where Peter was a fisherman, which means Matthew was the guy whose job it was to professionally rip off Peter, James, and John, and these other fishermen. And then one day, Jesus goes, hey, you know this guy that you guys all hate? 
He's not like you at all. He doesn't do the same job. He's not part of your community. He's really nothing like you. He's not as religious as you guys were. Yeah, we know that guy. Would you hit him with lightning or something? And then Jesus goes, no, actually, he's one of us now. Come on down. And then, you know, Levi comes on down or Matthew comes on down. And then he had to sit around the campfire uh, to be a fly on the wall that first night while they're sitting around the campfire with Matthew, the tax collector. And Jesus says, you guys are brothers now because you've all been redeemed by me. What is it that binds people like this together? It's the gospel. I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. So I don't care anything else about you. Even, see if I can choke this out. Even if you're a Dodgers fan, you guys. I can text our, my friend, you know, where the church, their old pastor. I can text Sean Garman, who sent John and Kayla to us, you know, connected us originally. I can text him and we know that our friendship is stronger than even the fact that he's a Dodgers fan, right? And so uh, this, this is what brings us together. So we have width. What that means is there's all different kinds of people in church. I say this a lot, but this is one of the things I kind of love about, even though our church is very small, one of the things I love about our church is, my, I've said this from the beginning, our, my goal for our church is to have a picnic at Washington Square Park and have somebody walk by and say to us, how do you all know each other? That would be awesome. And I bet people have looked at all of us hanging out, you know, at dinner or whatever and thought that. Okay, so we have this width. The second thing, though, is that church community has to have depth. Put on then, oh, wait, I'm, I just looked at my clock. Okay, uh, okay, let's do this. Um, I'm going to fly through some of this here. Put on then is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has also forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is a very fancy Greek way for Paul to say, you guys really need to put up with each other's crap. Because there's a depth in your relationship that doesn't exist anywhere else. Think about how many shallow communities there are. Giants fans, we're a shallow community. All that binds us together is we all kind of like this sports team. Think of um, coworkers. Generally, depth is hard to achieve in relationship with coworkers. Not always, but you guys know you have the coworkers or you know people in your life where the relationship just doesn't go very deep. Sometimes with neighbors, whatever it is. And what causes shallow, what causes shallow community? Let me ask that question. And the answer is... Um, in church, what causes shallow communities, I mean? The answer is a bad view of gospel truth. Let me explain. So if you think that the gospel is about how good you are to earn God's love, you're never going to have depth of community. If you're a Pharisee, because Pharisees show up and they have to pretend to be somebody that they're not really. And what that means is they put up walls and they put up barriers so that people can't really get into their lives. And they show up and they say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, and I was like, oh, didn't didn't you just get hit by a car and have surgery and you lost your job? And they, yeah, I'm, yeah, no, no, no. every day is a blessing, you know, like that shallow community. That's not what we're doing here. If you really believe the gospel and that the gospel works like this, you stink and God saved you anyway. And then that guy over there across the aisle, he stinks too. And we have been saved, but we all are still struggling with sin. And Jesus is constantly making us new. And one of the ways he makes us new is through depth of community. 
So you can show up to church and you can have real conversations and you can go out to dinner and you can do whatever. You can meet each other during the week and you can say, here's what I'm actually struggling with. And when two people get together and say, here's what I'm really struggling with, that the community goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so while I would say that I really appreciate the width of our community, I do appreciate the family aspect that our community is a lot deeper than some, but I think we could be a deeper community. I think we could get more into the practice of saying, man, I've had a really rough week spiritually. I didn't pray this week. I didn't do, you know, I've not been feeling, uh, you know, the love of God. I've not, I've been struggling with the sin of anger. I've been struggling with whatever it is. And then when you open up like that, the other person opens up and all of a sudden we're all helping each other grow and community grows deep. Okay, the third thing, we're going to fly through these last two here so we don't go forever. The third thing is the breaking of bread. So we have the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Now the question here is what are they, what is Luke talking about? Is he talking about like they just would get dinner or is he talking about communion? And the answer is, I don't know, kind of both. Because they would get dinner, and then in the middle of dinner, they would have communion together. Their communion meals, they called them love feasts, were all kind of wrapped up. Um, In our tradition, in our theological tradition, we have a word. It's called sacrament. Do you guys know these words? Okay. So I think when he says the breaking of bread, he just generally means the sacraments, like sacramental life. The word sacrament isn't a Bible word. It's like the word trinity. It's not in the Bible. There's no word where Jesus says, here's the sacraments. Um... It's actually a word that came out of the Roman military. So a soldier would take a public oath to be loyal to his commander in front of everybody, and then he would get a tattoo that says, I'm part of this legion. That was, that was the word sacrament. That's where that comes from. Um, we've kind of taken the word and we've uh, used it in uh, theology to say, just like those soldiers would take this oath We have these things that we do, public things. Um, Calvin said this, describing sacraments. It's a God's witness to us uh, of his favor towards us by means of an outward sign. The sacraments are exercises which make us more certain of the trustworthiness of God's word. Basically, sacraments are these things we do on the outside because of inward realities. And then the thing that we do on the outside helps us grab hold of that inward reality even stronger. Does that make sense? So um, in the Catholic Church, they have seven sacraments. So they have a lot more sacraments than we do. Um, You know, like uh, getting ordained, getting married. They have a lot of stuff. Uh, Confirmation, which is what I actually wrote my master's thesis about. Um, We, in the Protestant churches, though, we have two sacraments. What are they? Baptism and communion. And so we've already seen in our passage, they just had their baptism sacrament. So the next thing that they do, I think that's why he only gives us half. He says, we just did the other one. Now let's do the Lord's table. And can I also say this? Like, it sounds like, oh, the Catholics have too many sacraments. They don't even know. Um, Except for confirmation, which again, I could rattle off on. I don't, I really don't like the idea of confirmation for a lot of theological reasons. That was my master's thesis summed up. Um, The other things the Catholics have in their sacraments, they're not bad things. They're things we do. We just don't call them sacraments. Getting married, getting ordained as a pastor, you know. Anyway, so I'm not like, I don't mean to bash Catholics. I just, you know, out of the Reformation, we've come up with a different system. Um, And so the idea, though, of a sacrament is just very simple. 
we're we're tactile people. We like actual touching and do you know, we're not just all in our heads. And what I'm doing right now is all in your head. You're hearing me talk, right, from the microphone, you know, whatever. It's just these are ideas. But when we take the Lord's Supper, it's something tangible. You're literally holding a piece of bread in your hand and you're holding juice and you eat the bread and you you taste it. There's a sensation in your mouth. And then you drink the juice. And there's a sensation. The juice goes down your throat. It's something physical. When you get baptized, you hit the water. This is why the word baptism literally means to like dunk somebody. You know, that's why I'm not a fan of the squirt gun baptisms. You know, they do. Let's just sprinkle this guy on this baby a little bit. Right. Um, you you want to feel the water washing over you because it symbolizes, right, being, being made clean. And there's a reason why we don't just dump a bucket of water on you. We put you down and then we bring you back up because it's supposed to symbolize the life of Christ you know, and you know, the scariest part of my baptism? Well, two things. I wasn't even a Christian yet, and I just did it because they made me. And the second thing was I'm, I had never been underwater, I don't think, at this point in my life. <laughs> I was like 15 or 16. I was not a swimmer. I was like, I'm probably going to drown from this. Um, I think I've told this before. And then they baptized me, and I came up, and everybody was laughing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I got baptized wrong. You know, and then I didn't know what I did. And then somebody told me it's because I was a cool 90s kid, and I had my spiky hair. And it was all gel, and it was like a helmet. It was like hard. I went in and I came out. It looked like I didn't even get wet. And then everybody was laughing at me. But anyway, but I remember, even though I wasn't a believer, I remember the sensation, right? You know, that's going under and feeling. It's something we feel with our bodies. And then when you feel that water flooding over you or you feel the bread in your hand and the wine and the juice, you go, oh, this is, this is you know, it, it, it speaks to your soul in a way that me just telling you, Jesus was the body and blood, yada, yada, you know. Anyway, so that's the sacraments. Okay, here's how we're ending. The last one, uh, the prayers. By the way, uh, I didn't do, if you want to know more about this, you can text me the different like views of the Lord's Supper. Does it actually become Christ's body and blood? No, uh, but I didn't get into all that today. We don't have time for that. But if you want to know more about that, ask me later. Okay, the last thing is, so we have scripture, the apostles teaching, we have fellowship, the community. We have the sacraments that we take together. And the last thing is the prayers. Um, throughout the book, we, uh, book of Acts, we see the church constantly together in prayer, picking new apostles to replace Judas before Pentecost. We're going to see a bunch more healing the guy in chapter three. They're on the way to pray. When the leaders get arrested, they all pray as a response to threats. They pray. This is what the church did. They prayed. But what I want to do here and I, is collapse a few ideas that we've compartmentalized. When, I, when it says the prayers, I don't think it means only praying. I think it means worship as well, like the worship service. The time that we spend in worship to God is also a form of prayer. I think it's all in the same realm, um, like this verse here. When they were all worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, uh, send Paul and Barnabas on a missions trip or whatever. Um, but that part, part's the important part. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and then at the end, then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So at the beginning, it's called worshiping. At the end of that verse, it's called fasting. I'm sorry, it's called uh, praying. I think it's all kind of the same thing. And so I think when we read the phrase, the prayers, it is talking about prayer. And we'll get into that in a sec, but it's also talking about worship. Remember, this early church is made up of almost exclusively very devout Jewish people who were in Jerusalem on a vacation so that they could be worshipful. Imagine taking your vacation, imagine walking from here to Vegas so that you could go to church. 
The kind of people that are devout enough to do that are the people who really care about worship, right? And these guys were used to showing up at synagogue at regular hours every day to pray. The first century Jewish folks had a thing, kind of like, you know, Muslims have different times of day that they pray. These first century Jewish guys, they had the same kind of idea. They had set times that they would pray. And all of these people then became believers at the same time. And what we see is they were constantly, they just took what they were doing in their Jewish faith with their new fulfilled Christian faith, and they did similar things. And so they would have expected to be constantly praying together and constantly showing up to church at nine in the morning before work, or, you know, I guess way earlier than that, but whatever the, I don't know, I didn't look up what were the prayer times, but they had different times during prayer, you know. Um, It's interesting to me how every pastor that I meet with, we we go, we sit down, how you doing? Uh, You know, this is after COVID. This is how it goes. Every pastor goes, I don't know, you know, we're going. (laughs) There's been no pastor's meetings that I've been to where everybody was excited. Every one of them is, and we're going. And then at some point, the conversation always turns to, I just don't get why they don't care about it. Right? Why is Tahoe more important than what we're going to do for eternity. And, you know, and I think in our church, it's less of an issue. You know, like we have, I have a friend who literally more than half of his church doesn't show up for four months a year in the summer. Like their numbers more than, I don't know, about cut in half, whatever it is. I don't know. It's a big number. And they just, people go hunting and fishing and whatever, and they don't make church like a priority. When specifically... Was that thing, you know, from the office? How could you cheat on me when I specifically asked you not to? Right? It's like (laughs) there's a verse where God specifically asks us to take the worship service seriously. Consider how to stir one another up for love and good works, but not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how, if you've ever had the thought, why do I stink as a Christian? The reason is because church people are not stirring you up for love and good works. Either because you're not there or because you're not letting them with the depth of community, right? But we need to take community very, very seriously. Like there's literally a command, don't neglect this thing. And then we fast forward this. And he was talking to people, right, in Hebrews, He was probably talking to people that like prayed a couple of times a day together, had dinner a couple of times a week together. And then he goes, don't neglect to meet together. You fast forward that to the American church. And I didn't look up any of the stats, but I know the average is like a person goes to church like two and a half times a month, like the average church person. I think it's somewhere around there. Like don't neglect the meeting with each other for two reasons. You need this. You need to be part of a community like this. For your own spiritual welfare and you also need to be part of a community because there's somebody else here who needs you and so we show up to be served and we show up to serve but the second thing is i don't want to take the phrase prayer the prayers and just say it just means worship time because it also specifically means the prayers and it means praying and so i this is like uh this is how we're going to end application 
is really easy when the pastor gets to stand up and go, you guys suck. Application is harder for a pastor to get up and go, our church sucks because I'm the pastor. This is one of those, okay? So I'm including me in the group here, okay? This, the idea of prayer, I don't think we come off looking great, right? These other things I think we're pretty good at. The apostles' teaching, I mean, we guys, we read Ezekiel. I don't think we're going to have somebody be a secret shopper kind of a thing, come in here and give us a report and go, those guys don't even like the Bible, you know? That's not going to happen. The fellowship, compared to most churches, I think we're killing it on the fellowship. I think we spend a lot more time together and we care about each other more than a lot of churches. Part of that is because we're small and we're able to. And part of that is because this is what we love doing. The sacraments and sacramental life, I think we're good at that, right? There's no like huge issues there. And then we get to like the worship and the prayer time. Like when and how, when our church gets together, how is it that prayer goes? How do we pray together? Um, I was thinking about this the other day when I was writing this. I was like, man, what if the reason, and I'm not saying this is true, but like, what if the reason that things are going like they are is because our church isn't as dependent on God in prayer as we should be? The problem with asking that question is if that's true, it's kind of my fault. I set the tone, you guys kind of follow along. But at the same time, it's also kind of your fault because... Here's the part where I get to say, you suck, right? <laughs> I get to spit this back in your face. But the truth is that when we do get together and pray, I go, who wants to pray? And then everybody looks at their shoes. I just don't feel like as a church, we have that fire in our belly that we read about in the early church with Acts. Like if our church, I should have done this. I didn't because I don't want to. But if I had done a little experiment where I just didn't add any extra prayer and at the end of a Wednesday night, if I just stopped praying, okay, guys, we're done. Go get dessert. How long would it have been before somebody said, hey, how can we hardly pray anymore? I don't think, I think it would have been very long. Because I don't think we have that fire in our belly. I don't know why that is. I don't have like a here's, here's the big solution. I think the solution is the more that we engage in the word of God, the more that we engage in fellowship together, the more we see how broken we all are, and the more we see how much we need to be united to Christ and how much we need him. And even though I kind of suck at praying in groups, like I haven't done as much as I should have, and then when we do it, you guys all aren't that great at it either. Maybe if as a group of people we just get together and say, hey, here's this thing that we think is really important and we suck at it, let's do better. And so... This whole sermon is to tell you two things we're going to change, okay? The first is we're going to actually start doing prayer meetings, like an actual prayer meeting. And when I say that, what I mean is I want you all to actually go to the prayer meetings. Another thing pastors always complain about is if I did a movie night or a Super Bowl party, everybody would go, and then i do a prayer meeting, and 10% of the church shows up, right, when that really should be flipped, so we're going to do the first, we're going to do prayer meetings. We're going to start doing these quarterly is what I decided. We're going to take one of the last Wednesdays of the month where we meet here. So the first one of these we're doing is January 31st. The Wednesday night, you don't have to change anything except show up on the same Wednesday you always show up on. We're going to still meet downstairs. We're going to eat dinner. 
And then we're going to do a half hour. We're just going to start small. Okay, this is not a three-day prayer. You know what I mean? We're just going to start half hour to 45 minutes. I'm going to put out, I'm going to print out a couple of lyrics. We're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to pray. I'm going to have some Bibles out. You can read a verse if you want. You can pray about literally anything. We'll have some prayer prompts if you're like, I don't know what to pray for. Okay, so that's the first thing we're going to change. The second thing that we're going to change is uh, we're going to try to work in more prayer stuff on Wednesday night. Um, I think part of the problem is I've, I've, I've had this issue. Okay, if we start praying for our Pabst Blue Ribbon people, we got to pray for all of them. And if we pray for everybody, if we go around the room and we say, everybody tell me about three people, and there's 15 or 20 people in the room, we're done for the night. So what we're going to start doing is just every, every Wednesday night, one or two people is just going to say, here's somebody in my Pabst Blue Ribbon pathway, and here's what we can pray for them. And then right when they're done saying that, we're going to stop and we're going to pray for that person, and we're going to do that some more. These are two small changes. What I would like to see with these two small changes, though, is what I would not like to see, like that makes it sound like I'm a coach saying, you stop fumbling. That's not what I mean. The encouragement, I want to encourage you like this. Um, I think praying out loud in front of people is scary for some. And I would like for those people, would like as a church for us to help those people get over that. Because praying in a group with each other is vital to who we are. You know, that's like saying, well, I, you know, eating is hard for me. Well, you need to live, so you have to eat, right? You need to pray together. You need to live spiritually. Um, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, I think sometimes people don't want to pray in those group settings because I don't want to open up. I don't want to open the community up to another level in my life. But we have to. If this is really what we're doing, if we're a church, we're a very small church. If we're a church that has any chance of surviving, right? well, we do need to grow in our width with our numbers, but we also need to grow in our depth of letting people into our lives. And so nobody has ever said, I mean, okay, this is not true. People have said this, but nobody here has ever said in a prayer meeting, I can't believe how bad that guy sucks at praying. We think that's what they're saying. And we have this like weird, like, I can't get over this. I can't pray in front of people. And that's why even people will come up to me at like, Pastor, would you be okay praying? I always make the joke. It's a dad joke. I say the same joke every day, every time. Yeah, they taught me how to do that in seminary. Meaning they didn't teach me this. Yeah, anybody could do what you're asking me to do. But yeah, let's do it, right? And so I guess all that is kind of a depressing and that I think is a serious thing that we really need to think about as a church together is how do we pray together? As we look at this list, let's not pat ourselves on the back because we read Ezekiel. Let's look at it and go, why do we suck at this other thing? that's vital to the life of church. And as we look at the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see how important it is. And what I want is, as we read the rest of the book of Acts, instead of going, look at how bad we stink, I want to be encouraged to be better at something that maybe we're not great at. All right, that took longer than I thought. Let's pray.